2: John Loro and his team, which are Trump's attorneys, are making the point that Judge Chetkin from these comments is biased, or at least there is an appearance of bias, that she believes Donald Trump was behind the events on January 6th and that he should be charged accordingly. Now, what's a little bit awkward about this brief, it's, it's awkward because it seems like defense counsel is implicating their own client. At no point does Judge Shetkin explicitly say that she's referring to Donald Trump in the two previous cases. And it's it's a conclusion that John Loro and his team are drawing in this brief.
0: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 16th, 2023. It's another week, and it's another episode of Trump's Trials and Tribulations, our weekly video conversation with Lawfare editors and writers on the ongoing Trump trials. On Thursday afternoon, I sat down in the Virtual Jungle studio with Sarafine Danani, Roger Parloff, and in a hideous pink chair, Anna Bauer, We talked about what's going on in Mar-a-Lago. We talked about what's going on in Fulton County. We talked about what's going on in Judge Tanya Chutkin's courthouse in Washington. Is she gonna recuse herself? And we talked about Section Three litigation under the 14th Amendment in Colorado, Minnesota, and elsewhere. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Trump Trials and Tribulations, an update from courthouses around the country. Anna, why don't you get us started? There was a hearing in Fulton County Court today. It was televised. Tell us what happened.
3: Right, so there was a hearing in Fulton County Court today. It was a motions hearing. Judge McAvee, who is the presiding judge over the case in state court in Fulton County, decided to hear three motions today One was a motion to speak with grand jurors that had originally been submitted by Ken Cheesebro or excuse me, Chesbro, (laughs) Chesbro, not Cheesebro. And, and it seemed that his team is kind of gearing up to potentially make an argument challenging the indictment based on this claim that the grand jury only heard a summary of the indictment. Uh, his team has suspicions that that was the case. And, and so they said that they potentially want to make some kind of challenge to the indictment on that basis. So they've asked to speak or communicate with the grand jurors to ask them about the grand jury process. Then there is a motion to unseal special grand jury transcripts. The special grand jury, of course, is the grand jury that heard a testimony and, and evidence and investigated the events surrounding the 2020 election in Georgia for more than seven months and then produced a report that was that was released last week. Uh, so defense counsel for Chesbro has argued that uh, those transcripts should be released to defense counsel. and then finally, there was a motion to disclose unindicted co-conspirators. Uh, and, and that is exactly as it is uh, named in that uh, the unindicted co-conspirators, there are about 30 in the indictment who are not named and defense counsel wanted those folks' identities revealed. Um, Sidney Powell's defense team joined two of those motions before the hearing, and then I, I think adopted uh, the last one during the hearing. Um, it was kind of unclear, but um, it, it seemed to be the case that uh, Powell's counsel was was um, adopting all of them. So we had this, this motions hearing with Chesbrough's counsel and Sydney Powell's counsel, those are the folks who have claimed speedy trial demands and, and have a trial set for October 23rd. Judge McAfee heard argument on all of these. He ultimately decided uh, the following for the motion to speak with grand jurors. He took that under advisement, although it seemed like he said that it would at least be granted in part He seemed to uh, focus on the fact that there were some workable ways to uh, have defense counsel um, speak with the grand jurors with some maybe strict parameters. But he indicated that he would look at the case law that had been cited by the prosecution because they were very much opposed to the idea of defense counsel speaking with the grand jurors. And then on the motion to unseal special grand jury transcripts, McAfee said that that would likely be granted in part because he, he pointed out that if the state intends to call any of these witnesses at trial, they will likely have to turn over those transcripts anyway. He he was not so sure though as to whether all of the transcripts would, would need to be turned over. For example, if it's someone that uh, the state does not intend to call a trial. And then finally, the motion to disclose unindicted co-conspirators, that one ended up being moot because the state agreed to provide the names. And, and in fact, during the hearing, the state handed over the names of the unindicted co-conspirators to defense counsel. So that that one was uh, moot and, and Judge McAfee indicated that he would enter an order saying so. So that was the outcome of the hearing. And it was um, it was an interesting day in court, Ben.
0: Uh, So, Anna, how long did the hearing run today? Apparently, there was also an order regarding severance with respect to last week's hearing. Tell us what uh, what has been what arteries have been severed.
3: Right. So the hearing, I want to say that it was almost a little over an hour and a half, almost two hours, but I'm not sure because I was very, (laughs) I was very keyed into uh, tweeting about the hearing. And then afterward, we all kind of uh, followed the defense attorneys out to see if anyone would have anything to say. Powell's attorney was not in the mood to talk, but uh, Ken Chesbrough's attorney did have a little mini press conference. And in terms of the other things that are happening on the docket that that weren't addressed at the hearing, we did have a, a, a big uh, order that came down this, this morning from McAfee, big in the sense of not, it, it was many pages, but it was very significant because he determined that uh, Trump and 16 of other co defendants would be severed from the defendants who have thus far requested a speedy trial. That is, Kin Chesbro and Sidney Powell, the folks who had the motions hearing today. Uh, and so McAfee said okay, all 17 of these defendants will be tried separately from Kin Chesbro and from Sidney Powell but we still, as far as I'm aware right now, do not have a trial date. So that will be the big question in terms of, you know, the next big decision as to those 17 others. And then of course we had some action with the Mark Meadows removal appeal, but maybe we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah,
0: we'll get to that in a moment. Let us uh, check in as part of our ongoing project of evaluating different district judges Are we still impressed with Judge McAfee?
3: I'm really impressed with Judge McAfee. I think he was very no-nonsense.
0: He turned 13 between (laughs) last week and this week, so...
3: You know, he is, he's growing. Once again, yes, he is very young. He is very new to the bench. But I, again, he was very no-nonsense. And I will say, um, you know, even beyond what his performance was today in court, he uh, issued an order that was about this David Schaefer, you know, complaint about he received a, a mass mailing kind of advertisement, which law firms very often send out. It's often very automated. They look at court records and then just kind of automatically Send out these mass mailing advertisements to potential clients who, you know, have recently been indicted. David Schaefer got one of those advertisements and and made a, a filing about. Claiming improper communications because it was the advertisement was from Nathan Wade, who is the special prosecutor who has been working on this case for um, for some time. He's in private practice, but was appointed by the district attorney's office to work on this case. So uh, today, McAvee entered an order saying, you know. This case is going to have a lot of motions, and while this may be embarrassing for Nathan Wade's, uh, you know, private practice firm for sending this, like, this is a frivolous motion and and I'm not going to entertain it, Um, so please, in the future, don't bog down the court with frivolous motions. And I was really impressed with that. Um, so I think he's going to keep things efficient. He said today at the hearing that he wanted to get the jury sworn by November 5th. Um, as folks who have, you know, listened to me talk about some of the challenges with selecting a jury for RICO trials in Fulton County in the past might be aware it, it I'm a little bit skeptical as to whether a jury can be selected um, before November 5th if jury selection starts on October 23rd. But Judge McAfee says it's going to happen. He says he's going to maybe uh, introduce some new uh, uh, jury selection practices drawn from the, the federal system to get it done. So we'll see what happens. But I am thus far very impressed.
0: Let us check in for the first time in several weeks on Judge Eileen Cannon. Speaking of judges, we have an ongoing process of evaluation of. She actually issued an order, uh, a a protective order, uh, as best as I can tell, about two months late. Uh, Roger, what's up with that and uh, what's going on in South Florida?
4: Well, yes, um, back in July... Uh, this this is a SEPA case, of course, Classified Information Procedure Act. And one of the first things you do in a SEPA case is you get a protective order in place because before you can turn over the classified discovery, everyone has to agree how, how they can use it and how they can't use it. And usually that SEPA experts tell me that that usually takes about maybe five days, bearing in mind that the defendant's usually want to get the materials, uh, so they're usually usually not a uh, contentious process. And, um, you know, if, if there is a dispute, what you could do is you could say, well, okay, I'll agree to this tentatively, I'll, I'll agree to your terms, and then I'll file a motion to jigger with the terms. Instead of doing that, uh, Eileen Cannon set up, after there was a dispute, that arose she set up a two-month briefing schedule so the uh, government first approached um uh trump with a uh, and and at that point not a with a, a proposed uh, protective order in july 12th and they were prepared to turn over 80 percent of the classified d- discovery then and there uh, as soon as this was signed and um So instead, all of that has been in abeyance until now, uh, and she finally issued the order. And by and large, it's pretty much, uh, with respect to Trump, um, it's pretty much what the government uh, wanted. The points of contention were he wanted a sort of a a skiff at Mar-a-Lago in which he would be able to uh, discuss confidential information with his lawyers. Um, I would like a no men- skiff
0: at my house, too, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, and I think it's outrageous that the government does not provide me a skiff in order for me to review all the documents I'm not supposed to have, that I'm under criminal indictment for having illegally purloined.
4: Yeah, the, well, the 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 order says nothing about that you know it's conceivable that the ciso which is called a confidential information security officer um could approve such a thing but um even under this order if if he chooses to but there's no indication that he he will um another dispute had to do with the language about sharing wh- whether the defense lawyers could share this stuff with it says, you know, they can share it with their staff to who are security cleared. And uh, Trump wanted a very broad definition of staff that would include like volunteers. And uh, so that was a concern. Uh, that's not there. And then the other really related to Nada and later de Oliveira, the other defendants, whether they would be able to see classified materials. It's very common in SEPA cases for defendants not to be permitted to see classified materials, um, and, and instead you just permit their lawyers to see it. That is certainly what the government wanted to do with respect to Nada and Oliveira, who aren't charged with espionage espionage act offenses not it's possible Nauta at one point had a security clearance he was in the navy uh, as far as we know de Oliveira has never had one he's probably never possessed a classified document or been trained in their use so and the outcome there again was for the government um neither will be permitted to view as things stand um Uh, classified information with the exception that Nauta will be able to see that document that spilled out of the box, you know, in the photograph, in the indictment. There's one, uh, a a document that, you know, the box toppled over and everything spilled out and you could see uh, a, a classified document very prominently. He'll be permitted to see that one. So it sounded like the government prevailed, but then moments later, Uh, the judge issued an unusual order asking for more briefing. And it's a little opaque because on Tuesday, right before this order was signed, there was a sealed hearing. And so the lawyers among themselves know what the dispute is about. And we we really don't. But uh, it seems to be that over this same thing, about Nauta and Oliveira and whether they should get these uh, classified documents, they as opposed to their lawyers. Their lawyers will be permitted to see all of these. The government concedes that. But whether they themselves personally get to see these classified documents. And uh, apparently she, it sounds like she's still troubled by that because if you read Rule 16 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, ordinarily that sort of thing would be turned over. But the Classified Information Procedures Act alters a lot of those ordinary rules because of the urgent circumstances of protecting national defense information. And uh, the judge seems very concerned about this, and she ordered astoundingly broad briefing. I'll, I'll read a little of it. She wants the briefs to evaluate, quote, the text of the provision, that Section 3, the statutory context of Sipa as a whole, including the meaning of the words in Section 3 as applied throughout the statute, any decisional law interpreting Section 3, and any relevant historical, legislative, or secondary materials informing a proper understanding of Section 3, included in this analysis should be a corresponding study of and comparison to section 4 of SEPA, of along with any pertinent analysis of rule 16 and section 4 deals with exceptions generally to the discovery rules w- 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 whether you can sort of redact documents classified documents when you when the government turns them over so you know bearing in mind that these guys aren't even charged under the espionage act it really suggests that she has a lot of discomfort with sort of with the with sepa and uh this sort of bodes ill because right now we're at the easy part you know we haven't even gotten to the hard part which is going to be what exactly happens when are these are introduced in a public court hearing because there's 30 years of practice that has evolved that you know permits unusual things, uh, the silent witness rule, which we've done, pot, you've done podcasts about, and I've written about things that are unusual. And if this gives her a problem, those are likely to give her a problem. And there's really very little Eleventh Circuit law. Most of these cases go in the Fourth Circuit, so I I I found that a little concerning.
0: And where are we in that briefing process? When did she order that briefing?
4: Oh, she ordered it um, yesterday. And what's the
0: timeframe of it? I mean, she's basically asked both sides for, you know, a dissertation and treatise on Section 3 of, like, when does she need it
4: by? I don't have that at my fingertips. It was – but she also asked them – Suisponte she does a lot of things Suisponte um if if they needed to postpone the section 4 in order to do this whether they needed to postpone the section 4 step the next step in the schedule which occurs in October
0: so do you is your impression here that i mean let me speak for the suspicious-minded people in the audience for a moment. That, all right, Judge Eileen Cannon has figured out that if you make outrageously pro-Trump rulings, you will get smacked down by the 11th Circuit and you will be embarrassed and humiliated. But if you merely order briefing of everything in a uh, in a detail that... You know, frankly, other judges wouldn't do, and you take forever to make perfectly routine rulings, and you ask for sort of picayune explanations and sort of treatises to be written on matters that are fairly routine, you can actually drag this thing out for a good long time. And by the way, you immunize yourself from a certain amount of criticism because you've set a trial date that's pretty reasonable, which then you'll push off as needed in small increments. So am I being unfair to uh, poor judge cannon who's just trying to do a diligent job here or is, or is there reason to be as suspicious as my question
4: sounds? I have my own conspiratorial suspicions but they they actually aren't that um uh, by the way the the motion that that those tr- that treatise is due uh uh September 25th i i think there's something very odd uh about her approach to this case and uh and i um and i think there is a reflexive this gets into some armchair psychologizing so uh, you take it for what it's worth but she does seem reflexively very hostile to uh, prosecution positions, and which is surprising given that she used to be a prosecutor, or at least an appellate uh, in the appellate division of a U.S. attorney's office. And um, it's 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 disconcerting. Now, Anna has actually been before her. I, I mean, seen her. I have not. I. This is what I. How I get what I get reading the bare text, but there's also odd things about. There's a lot of Sua stuff. There's a lot of striking of uh, filings from the record without anyone asking that they be struck, and it, it's sort of the way Trump issues pardons. You know, it's a it's like a <laughs> power thing, and um, it seems almost like somebody who's insecure and wants to show I'm in control. So, okay, so Dr. Parloff will now conclude with the psychology portion of uh, this uh, program and uh, go, go back to uh, our our lane.
0: Well, I, I just think if you wanted, if you were, if you'd say had a few months after the 11th Circuit smacked you hard across the face and you'd said, okay, I really want to protect Donald Trump but I want to do it in the fashion that least courts reversal and humiliation. Being slow uh, gets Trump 65% of what he wants. He wants to push this off, past the election, win, and get rid of these cases. And if you can just stall it, you can do A fair chunk of that.
4: It's true, but I'm, what I think is what I am seeing coming down the pike is some sort of ruling that will endanger SEPA for the use, you know, across the country. And that will certainly require, yes, it'll get you time because there will be an interlocutory appeal, but it will get you.
0: And CEPA rulings are, as an appellate, uh, are appealable on an interlocutory basis, almost uniquely among pretrial rulings.
4: And at that point, I think some some judge might just take her off the case.
0: All right. Let's move on to our next judge now, Uh, Judge Tanya Chutkin who is not Donald Trump's favorite judge. Uh, He wants her recused and filed a motion for recusal uh, right after our last Trump trials and tribulations. So we're reaching deep into our memory here. Uh, Sarah Finn, you're our Judge Chutkin watcher. Uh, Number one, uh, is she gonna recuse and does she have to? How good is this motion? And number two, um, what is the rule that, uh, like, what's the right answer to this question? What's the case that Trump's making? And how should uh, Judge Chutkin think about it?
2: The short answer to your first question, first part to your first question is, she probably will not rule in favor of Trump. And I'll answer the second question now, which is, what is going on? What's the rule? So, Trump's team filed a motion to recuse Judge Chutkin under 18 U.S.C. section 455A, which states that recusal is appropriate when the impartiality of a judge is reasonably questioned. And the defense cites two instances where they feel like Judge Chutkin has shown her biases against Donald Trump. They're both cases from the January 6th insurrectionists. In one case, she says to um, a writer that it's true that they had a blind loyalty to one person who remains free to this day. And then the second quote is related, it's similar. It's a different defendant. And she says to this defendant during sentencing um, that you make a good point. It's true that the folks who, um, she probably didn't say folks, but she said uh, those who funded and planned the January 6th events um, have not been charged and they remain free. And then she continued on to say, of course, that doesn't impact the sentencing that you receive. She also at one point said that she has her own opinions about January 6th, but she continued and said that that's irrelevant in this case. And so John Loro and his team, which are Trump's attorneys, are making the point that Judge Chetkin from these comments is biased, or at least there is an appearance of bias, that she believes Donald Trump was behind the events on January 6th and that he should be charged accordingly. Now, what's a little bit awkward about this brief, and I think this is answering one of your questions, Ben, is it's it's awkward because it seems like defense counsel is implicating their own client. At no point does Judge Shetkin explicitly say that she's referring to Donald Trump in the two previous cases. And it's it's a conclusion that John Loro and his team are drawing in this brief. Now, of course, reasonable, reasonable minds can probably infer that she's referring to Donald Trump, But if you read her comments, again, she's not saying anything that's false. Um, It's true when she says that one person remains free to this day, this person that you had blind loyalty to. The one person this person that this defendant had blind loyalty to was Donald Trump. And at that point, he remained free, continues to do so. It's also true that the folks who planned and who um, funded the events on January 6th had not been charged at that point. So there's really nothing of issue, it seems. And yet, uh, defense is making this claim, and they're citing uh, some cases. Interestingly enough, a lot of these cases are outside the D.C. Circuit, which means that they're not going to be binding on the D.C. Circuit Court. The two cases that they do cite uh, stand for a very uh, different um, conclusion. So one case, for example, is about a judge who has a relationship with one side Um, Of a case, one party, and so in that in that case, the appeals court, the D.C. Circuit, holds that there is an instance of bias here. And then there's another D.C. Circuit case where we have a judge who's making public statements and having interviews with the media while trial is ongoing, and that's that's not the issue here. So that brings me to another point, which I think is lacking in this brief, and that is that. Counsel does not go through the pains of analyzing the cases that they cite against the fact patterns in the Trump case. So, you know, that's typical of lawyering. You should be taking the facts of the cases that you're relying on and comparing and contrasting them to the issue in front of you. And that's not too much to ask. Both John Lauro and Todd Blanche are seasoned prosecutors. They both worked at White Shoe Law Firms in New York City. They they know this. And this brief falls quite flat to me. Now, the one case that they do cite is a Supreme Court case. I think it's a 1994 Supreme Court case um, by the name of Lateki, the United States. And in that case, the court sets out the legal standard to find judicial bias and decides when recusal is appropriate. It's a case that defense cites in passing, again, cherry picking the quotes that they like, but they don't analyze the case. And the, that case really does address the issue at hand here. In that case, Judge Scalia makes very clear that the opinions held by judges as a result of what they learned in earlier proceedings cannot be characterized as bias or prejudice unless they display a deep-seated favoritism or quote antagonism that would make fair judgment impossible he goes on to say that you know disinterestedness does not mean childlike innocent uh, innocence if a judge is to render a decision then of course they'll have to reach a final judgment and i draw this out because it's so critical when i think back to the two hearings i attended um, of Judge Chetkin's. She made very clear that this is a court of law. We are not going to put politics in this. I'm not going to decide this case on political grounds. And that's not dissimilar from the Lateki case, where the judge also said that this is a criminal case. Uh, this is not a political forum. So th- the facts between these two cases are quite similar. And perhaps even more importantly, there have been so many moments with Judge Chetkin giving John Loro time and, and space to just air out his grievances, he had a number of monologues where he just went off and talked about how this is a political case. This is Joe Biden and his cronies coming in and trying to, um, you know, sabotage the um, campaign of President Trump. And she let him have that, those moments in court, not to mention that she has ruled favorably for uh, defense specifically in the protective order um, context. So she hasn't shown this you know, favoritism or antagonism that would make fair judgment impossible.
0: All right. So yeah, I want to come back to Scalia's latecky opinion for a second, because it seems to me, first of all, it has to be right. And the reason it has to be right is that if it's not right, most supreme justice Supreme Court justices and most appellate court judges have to recuse from like a shitload of cases because they present issues that are related to issues they've thought about before. That's how we know what their views are on a bunch of things so like if you think about like the judges that we know who believe in X doctrine or not. Or disbelieve in why doctrine. That's because they've ruled on prior cases. And if the if the idea that that's bias, rather than different people have different intellectual approaches to things, and you learn that about judges by watching them in cases, it seems to me it's pretty quick step to everybody's properly recused from everything they know anything about. Is is there any? is there any distinction to draw there i mean there's no judge on the DC, on the dc circuit district court which maybe is trump's point right that hasn't had a bunch of january 6 cases hasn't had a bunch of sentencing and hasn't been confronted by the argument hey, yeah, I did X, but I did it because I was loyal to Donald Trump. Rogers sat in like 10 of those cases and talked about it on on the podcast numerous times. Like which judge doesn't have this, you know, and there's a, there's another recusal principle that if everybody has the same conflict, you don't, like you don't recuse based on it. And so I'm I'm curious, making the best case you can for Trump's side, is there anything in like is there anything in their motion about Judge Chein that is unique to her rather than simply a creature of the fact that there have been twelve hundred of these cases in front of judges on her court?
2: Let me answer your question by saying something tangential, which is I think it's hard to be sympathetic to defense because. They don't make that point, Ben. You make that point. And I think it's a fine one that these cases have been heard by I think at this point, every single judge on the DC circuit that it's impossible to find someone that's impartial. And that's 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 the issue here is that they haven't done the work to make these arguments. They've just cherry-picked quotes from different cases and then uh, used those cases to make the rules that they want and then shared the facts of this case and then decided what's right and, and that Judge Chetkin should be recused. But putting that aside, if I have to be sympathetic to defense, I might make hay of the fact that Judge Chetkin said that, um, She has her own opinions. And of course, it's irrelevant. This is in the January sixth case, but that she's referring to Donald Trump and that that personal opinion may in some way hinder her ability to be impartial. But again, we have this Lateki case and Judge Scalia talks about this very clearly that judges are allowed to have their own opinions. It would be again, it would be impossible for them not to have opinions made up after previous trials or previous hearings, because that then helps them find have a final judgment. And that's a Course, going to carry with them in the future um, cases that they hear.
0: It's been a while since I've read the Rehnquist memo in the Laird v. Tatum case, declining to recuse. But I remember that that has some sort of similar valence that, hey, yeah, these are issues that I worked on. That's not the relevant question. The relevant question is is there a client interest? Is there a recusal? And like, is there a, a duty to somebody? Uh, that prejudices your ability to hear the case. I, you know, I, I'd have to look it up. And so, the government's brief on that matter is due today, right?
2: That's right, and we are waiting for it to come.
0: And do we? And we have no reason to expect that Judge Chutkin will not rule promptly on that. She seems to be unlike. Judge Cannon ruling promptly on things. I think
2: that's right, and uh, in fact, uh, this morning uh, during one of our uh, during our A.M. meeting, Roger made a good point, which is she might just rule on it. She might not even have a hearing, and it's something that I hadn't considered. But it's true. This brief is quite frivolous, and it would not make much sense for her to have a hearing when I don't think that defense counsel has done the work to. Uh, put up a proper brief that takes legal takes the cases and makes comparisons and then reaches a conclusion. Uh, that's up to par to I think what she would expect.
4: I did actually make a mistake this morning in that uh, she did allow them three calendar days for reply. So uh, I don't think there will be a ruling before Sunday or Monday.
0: All right. Let's move on to our three judge panel on the 11th circuit which uh, is, uh, we now have an 11th Circuit appeal on the removal question. This is now uh, back in Fulton County. And we have an emergency stay request that has another 11th Circuit uh, panel that had a hearing tomorrow, canceled the hearing tomorrow. Dude, Anna Bauer, what is going on in the 11th Circuit?
3: Right. So if everyone remembers, it was on Friday, I want to say late on Friday, that Judge Jones, the federal district court judge, determined that Meadows would not be able to remove his case in Georgia to federal court. Uh, so Meadows, within hours, appealed that decision or filed his notice of, of appeal at the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the federal court of appeals in, in the uh, district that the Northern District of Georgia kind of feeds its appeals to. And Meadows also additionally asked for expedited review and an emergency stay pending appeal, which basically meant that he was asking for the 11th Circuit to E aí in some way, pause the state court proceedings. It's a little bit unclear exactly what it is that he wanted them to pause, but at a minimum, he wanted the state court to not be able to enter a judgment of conviction against him. Uh, at the time, he was still set for trial with Sidney Powell and Ken Chesbro on October 23rd. Those cases had not been severed yet, um, and and so Meadows asked for this stay pending a. Appeal, the uh, 11th Circuit panel that is hearing that, that, or that was hearing that motion for a stay uh, was Judge Wilson, who is a Clinton appointee, and then Judge Jordan and Judge Rosenbaum, who are Obama-appointed judges. Um, And uh, they set oral argument that was supposed to happen tomorrow morning at 10.15 on this question of whether or not the state court, proceeding should in some way be enjoined or stayed uh and I was very excited to go to that or or to listen to it on Zoom um and then right whenever I got out of the hearing for Chesbro and Powell uh a, a motion was filed by Meadow's team saying that he was going to withdraw his emergency motion for a stay uh he noted that the 11th circuit had granted his motion for an exped- expedited review they're going to wrap up the briefing uh, by the week of September 28th. Um, And and he also noted that earlier today, Judge McAfee, the state court judge, had granted severance uh, as to uh, were 17 defendants and and then uh, Chesbro and Powell. So that meant that Meadows is very unlikely to go to trial by October 23rd. Uh, His trial will occur at some time later. I think, though, what what is also going on here, Ben, and maybe we can talk about this a little bit more, uh, is that with stay proceedings, Uh, one of the questions that the panel would have considered is the likelihood of success on the merits. Um, And that means that they could have written a little mini opinion. And even though it's not binding precedent, you know, it tends to have some weight because there are different panels. So there's a motions panel that will hear the stay. And then there will be a merits panel that will actually decide the appeal about whether or not Judge Jones got it right to uh, send the case back to state court. So I think what actually maybe is going on here is that Meadows – realized that he really didn't draw a very good panel in terms of who might be more friendly to his arguments. Um, and so he didn't want to risk having them write an opinion, uh, that in some ways went through the analysis and, and potentially, uh, you know, made the argument that Judge Jones got it right. So, but I, I'd be interested to see if anyone disagrees with that. Um, but yeah, that's the update with Mark Meadows. So now we're just awaiting the, the briefing on the actual appeal itself, because that is still going forward at the 11th circuit.
0: Uh, and do you think there's any chance of a emergency stay motion to the Supreme Court or to the banc 11th circuit? I mean if Steve Vladek were here, he would say this is this is what I wrote a shadow docket book about, right?
3: Well, I don't I don't think they could do an on I don't think that the eleventh circuit allows Stay's pinning appeal to go on Bonk. Um No, but, but
0: you could go but you could go directly to the Supreme Court about that. Yeah, it, right? yeah,
3: I mean I guess so. But I I mean I can't say. I, it it maybe, but it feels like at this point, like um I mean, I I don't foresee that happening, but you never know. Uh, It depends on how, how, if things start really going fast in state court, maybe.
0: Right. As long as they have time and we're not imminently heading to trial in state court, it's kind of harmless to let it play out at its own rate. The problem arises if you have a stalled, you know, kind of plodding along What's effectively a collateral attack on the state proceeding going on while you're imminently heading to trial, then you start running into double jeopardy problems.
5: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work.
1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: All right, let's talk about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Shift gears radically, move to non-criminal proceedings, different part of the the constitution, different, totally different parts of the country. And then we're going to go to audience questions. So I'm going to actually introduce this with an audience question. Jacob asks, Roger, is the 14th Amendment issue effectively dead, given the announcements by Michigan and New Hampshire that the secretary of state offices don't have the authority to remove Trump from a ballot, Or is the Colorado court case still a live option? So, yeah, what does it matter that some secretaries of state are like, you know, I'm writing an op-ed in the Washington Post saying I don't get to do this?
4: Um, That doesn't end it. We now have two serious cases. We have probably many uh, frivolous cases, as some have already been dismissed, Um, but Uh, There is the case in Colorado that was filed, I think, last week. It's attorneys with the uh, Crew organization. Um, And then this week we had an interesting one. It's been filed. That one is filed in uh, Denver, the uh, second judicial uh, district district court. And uh, it briefly was remanded. uh, Trump remanded it, but then... uh, gave up on his remand and it came back. This week uh, we have this one in Minnesota where a different uh, nonprofit group uh, of attorneys uh, are representing uh, residents of Minnesota and they filed directly in the Minnesota Supreme court. And that's based on a statute there that purports to give or does give uh, any individual a right to file a petition Um, to correct an error uh, in an official ballot, quote, including the placement of a candidate on the official ballot who is not eligible to hold the office for which the candidate has filed. And if the ballot concerns uh, a federal officer uh, or, I mean, a candidate for a federal office, uh, you file it in the Supreme Court, uh, the state Supreme Court. So, um, that's, uh, w- there's obviously been no response yet from, um, the, the, the defendant is, uh, the S- Secretary of State of Minnesota, Steve Simon. Uh, obviously, uh, Trump, uh, will, uh, intervene in some way. So that might, that, that could be interesting. And of course, uh, it, it also starts at a high level, which means that the appeal might go, uh, to a high level. So um uh that one is that one is interesting. Meanwhile there are lots of frivolous ones. Uh, what you cannot do is just go into federal court and ask for a declaratory judgment. And a lot of people do that. A lot of lawyers do that uh, pro se and those get thrown out uh without even uh the uh, uh anyone even opposing them because you lack uh Standing, You can't, you, there's no particularized concrete injury, which you need in federal court. You don't actually need that in state courts. And, uh, so these people that, uh, you know, the, these statutes, these state statutes say any individual, or we, we saw this, uh, in the challenges to Cawthorne, Madison Cawthorne in North Carolina or, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene in, in Georgia, um, the local statutes, and it varies a great deal from state to state, will give this right to any voter or any resident or any blah, blah, blah. And the, how it's dealt with, usually in an administrative law judge or, or a commission, uh, varies. And in some, and some states don't provide this. So, like Arizona it doesn't provide this. Uh, so, um, you're out of luck. So uh, some states can do it, and some can't and and that's, uh, that's where we are. By the way, th- there's a curiosity here. you know, a lot of us have been wondering why Trump has not himself tried to remove the Georgia case, and a lot of reasons have been offered and I will now offer still another one that's even more speculative than the others, but you know to remove uh the, the 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 Georgia cases the people have been saying I was a federal officer well one of the issues in these section 3 of the 14th amendment cases is whether the president is a federal officer in other words one of the defenses that certain scholars interpose for trump is to say well if you read the gnarly language of section 3 of the 14th amendment most insurrectionists are barred from most offices, but it turns out the president isn't one of them because it, it you have this, the oath you have to take has to be f- as a federal officer. And for X, Y, and Z reasons, we don't consider the president a federal officer. So it's conceivable. He doesn't want to go into court and say, I was a federal officer. Please remove my case. Now that may be silly. You can, you can, Federal officer can mean different things for different purposes, but that's a possibility.
0: All right. So I want to add one thing to, to this, which is there is no way this issue is going to die without a resolution by the Supreme Court. And the reason is that there is some very clear constitutional language that raises a very substantial question about whether Donald Trump is eligible to be president again. And there are three essential components that have to be answered in order to resolve this question. And I, I say this without expressing my view of what the answer to these questions is. One is whether, the, pre- as Roger just says, whether the presidency the president is an officer of the United States within the meaning of section three's jurisdictional provision. The second is um, whether January 6th, Trump's role constituted engaging in insurrection. And the third is a bizarre question, but I think a real one, whether this 1870 amnesty law effectively which is, you know, technically still on the books, effectively erases. For congressmen, there are other questions like what's the enforcement mechanism. Uh, There's also the question of whether this is self-executing. You have to answer those questions. And as long as you don't answer those questions, um, some secretary of state or some county commissioner who controls the ballot is going to say, this person is not eligible to be president. And some other one is going to say, yes, he is. And you're going to have a conflict between those. And the result is that you're going to have appeals. And this simply has to be resolved. It has to be resolved by the Supreme Court, because there's no other court that is competent to resolve it for everybody. And that means... Uh, effectively, that you're going to have a lot of procedural machinations in various different states in order to try to get different account, different different mechanisms to rule on it. And ultimately, the Supreme Court is going to have to consider it. Do you agree with that, Roger?
4: Uh, yes. I think that the 1872 or 18, there's a second amnesty too. I think those are sort of dead in the water at this point. People may make the argument. I, that's We've moved on the self executing is an is an important issue, but yeah, I think uh, this is a real scary thing because um, we're talking about a train wreck uh with violence we, uh, people very upset uh, about uh, being excluded from the vote and uh, or their candidate being and um, and so we need a fast and definitive uh, resolution before. It gets worse and worse if, the, you know, if, if it's, somebody tries to resolve it after the election and he's won.
0: All right, John, you have the next question.
4: I feel like <laughs> the immensity of litigation calls
1: for like a really snazzy Google sheet with fancy formulas and visualizations to track these dockets. I mostly say that because I can't keep track of them in my head anymore, and usually I can. So the question is, does anyone know of really a good public Google sheet that tracks all this stuff in a useful way?
0: So the answer to that is no, I don't know of a good Google sheet, but we do have three uh, docket pages uh, on Lawfare that are tracking uh, the three uh, Trump cases that are kind of within Lawfare's jurisdiction. We're not, we're not, we don't have a docket page for the New York case, but we do for Mar-a-Lago and Fulton County and uh, January 6th. We are working on a tracking document, a calendar, I think. I'm not sure if it is going to be a Google Sheets or a calendar, but we are working on a mechanism to a cross-docket kind of action document. Anna Hickey, do you want to say what we can say about that at this point?
3: Uh, sure. Lawfare is hopefully going to have, by the um, end of next week, a Google calendar that will have all of the court dates uh, for the ongoing Trump trials to make it easier for everybody to figure out what hearing is happening when, because it is getting pretty confusing.
0: All right, John, your, uh, your second question.
1: Thank you, Anna Hickey. Uh, so, my postscript was I, at the beginning of this morning's hearing in Fulton County, there was a discussion about oral motion practice versus, uh, you know, in the federal system, everything's on paper for the most part, and kind of how this, the state court proceeding was sort of seated the pantsy. And I, I thought it maybe merited some discussion from you all, and I wonder where it will go because I think it's a serious issue. Uh, when, you know, stuff gets decided on the fly with with limited briefing. And I think defense really had a good point to make there, and and I haven't heard much chatter about it really anywhere.
0: Okay, so I will just say we talked about this last week uh, in the context of removal, and one of the arguments that Anna and uh, I and uh, Alan Rosenstein made in our piece which was quasi-sympathetic to the defense on the removal question and was uh, treated with the deference it was due by Judge Steve Jones, um, was that, you know, there is a radical difference in, uh, in technical competency. And I don't mean competence here in the sense of incompetence or ineptitude. I don't mean it that way at all. I just mean institutional capacity between a, a, a big federal court that has complex litigation all the time and a uh, and a, and a comparatively very small caseload by the way you know it has relatively few but very big very complicated cases and a local county courthouse that granted it's a big city courthouse but you know they don't deal with this kind of case very often and you see that when you know, as Anna points out, uh, you try to pick a jury in the Young Slime Life case, and it takes eight months, and you don't have a single juror seated yet. Um, you know, and that is does not happen in the federal court in Atlanta. And so, I do think there is a there is just a institutional capacity difference, and you're describing one aspect of that, which is by no means which is an important aspect of it, but it's by no means the only one. I do think in this case, it is mitigated by the fact that to go back to an earlier point that Anna and I were talking about, that Judge McAfee is a very serious guy. And, you know, this is not a Lance Ito situation for those who are old enough for that name to mean something, where you really have a judge who is just out of his depth in managing a courtroom with the eyes of the country watching him. And I, I think Judge McAfee has, is doing a really, really good job so far. That said, this is the trickle of what is going to be a major flood. And I do think, you know, the this is one of the better arguments for removal of at least part of this case to federal court. Just the the court itself is is better postured to deal with litigation of this magnitude. Anna, do you have further thoughts on that?
3: I mean, my only thoughts are just state courts are going to state court. Like it's, this is in state courts. It's not just Fulton County. Like this is just very common in state courts in general it operates very it's very different from federal court it's and it's for the reasons that ben just explained with institutional capacity you know there's other reasons but um I, I i think that you know what we saw with rafferty is someone who's maybe more used to federal practice who's coming in and you know it has these complaints which i think are very valid because you know i I, I understand that defense attorneys to be zealous advocates for their clients uh, you know they'll they should get citations in advance of a hearing but that's just not how it usually works in state court um, and and the defense attorneys who were there who you know are state court defense attorneys, you know they weren't complaining about it because, uh, or for the most part, they they did you know have some complaints about the PowerPoint uh, not being available beforehand. But uh, you know they kind of know how it goes, and um, I, I I don't know that it is going to be an issue just because this is how things go in state court. Uh, it's a little bit more uh, fly by the seat of your pants, um, and I'm not really sure that there is anything that the defense attorneys could validly raise in terms of a legal challenge to that. Um, but, um, it's an interesting point and, and it's a good, it's a good way of, of also pointing to why it's really important to, be following and and uh, reading coverage from people who are familiar with how things work in Fulton County and in S- Georgia State Court, um, because, you know, there's a lot of analysis out there from folks who are very used to how things work in federal court, and often we've seen through this entire investigation from the special grand jury to now have seen that uh, very often principles or uh, things that would usually uh, apply rules that apply in federal court just don't translate to state court. So, um, but interesting question. Thanks, John.
0: Julia, you have the next question.
5: I have been watching um, with not a little amusement at the uh, comic relief, the, the the plays that go on outside the uh, federal courthouse in Washington, D.C., and the signage and all of that.
0: Were you uh, were you appropriately amused by the uh, the anti circumcision protester who was yes. acc- accosting uh, everybody for a while? No first in no peace.
5: I was very much amused by that fellow. Yeah. I,
0: I, he's my hero. <laughs>
5: <laughs> no, I'd like to come to D.C. and hang out outside that courthouse just to watch the movie because it's a movie out there. Anyway, I do have a question uh, because of the movie out there. Um, apparently, there's now an issue in Navarro's case because the uh, court officer took the jury out in the middle of deliberations out to get some fresh air, and they were exposed at some level to some of the um uh, shenanigans going on outside the courthouse. And now I understand that Navarro's attorney has raised an objection and thinks that maybe the jurors were unduly influenced by the fuckery that was going on outside. Can you just talk about that? I mean, is it a serious thing? Um, Should we be worried about that? Roger, do you have thoughts about it?
4: From my reading in the press about what happened and what was known, um, I'm not too concerned. Um, It's sounded like a lot of speculation so far, but uh, Judge Maida is taking it seriously. He's going to... Allow uh, he's going to produce uh, the surveillance cameras uh, footage from outside the court to try to see what what a sign said. We don't even know that. We don't know what sort of sign it was that they might have been exposed to if they no saw foreskin, it. no foreskin,
0: no peace. Right, <laughs> and would that be biasing?
4: I mean it. It all has a grasping at straws flavor. To it, to me, but um, I guess we we have to see what they can develop. There's also maybe a timeliness issue. Um, you know, the jury has now been excused, and uh, uh, this is coming up a little belatedly. So um, I, I'm I'm skeptical, but uh, Judge Maida will will track it down to the extent it can be tracked down and take it seriously.
0: But if, as I recall, he has not lost jurisdiction over the kid, right? He could just declare a mistrial and and retry it, right? It's not a or 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 would you have a double jeopardy problem with that?
4: I I don't think there would be a double jeopardy problem since it's the defense coming for. I mean, it's the defendant yeah. coming forward and asking for a new trial. So you're right. You could you could do it again, and it would take a few hours.
0: Yeah, like the first one did. Ian, you have the next question. Hello.
1: Um, Everyone's excited about the 14th Amendment, but um, under the 22nd Amendment, anyone who's been elected president twice can't become president again. Um, And Trump lost in 2020, but he and lots of his supporters, including presumably a bunch of red state secretaries of state, um, continue to claim that he won. Could this be a basis for a challenge to Trump's eligibility? Uh, or does like elected mean the actual electors and the counting of the votes and all that yeah so i th-
0: i think it would be a really bad idea for anybody to uh acknowledge that he had been elected a second time who wanted to uh prevent him from uh who, who wanted to prevent him from uh, assuming office you don't want to uh feed that particular uh, uh, narrative uh, that says, as a formal matter, he was not elected a second time. No matter what you think of the uh, of the um, uh, of of the integrity of the vote, the vote took place. There were certified results of that election, and they elected electors who, in fact, cast votes uh, on December twelfth. Those votes were counted. On January sixth, albeit in a sort of interrupted fashion, that is the election, um, and so there is no question that, as a formal matter, Trump was not elected twice. So, at least on that basis, he is eligible, at least in my view, to be president a second time. However much it pains me to say it, Bob, good to see you. You you get the next question. Thank you, and thank you for having this
6: forum. Um... On the Eleventh Circuit uh, Meadows appeal, I saw that in, in ordering an expedited a briefing, the Eleventh Circuit posed its own question as to whether the removal statute for federal officials applies to former former federal officials or whether it just applies to current federal officials. Uh, that's something I hadn't thought about before. I'm wondering if the panel has any thoughts on that.
0: Yeah. So I have uh, I I have no idea what the what the statutory right answer to that question. I noticed it too. I will say I think it would really frustrate the policy purpose of the relevant statute if it did not apply to former officials for conduct that took place while they were active officials. Because if the, the goal of the statute is to prevent state prosecutors from harassing the federal government in the fashion in the, in the conduct of its federal obligations I can't really see how it matters if the person has retired in the interim uh, or not that said that's a policy argument not a legal argument and uh, I don't know what the what the right answer from a statutory interpretation point of view is have you looked at this at all Anna
3: Yeah. So the Eleventh Circuit, when it was asking for additional briefing, it pointed to the text of of 28 U.S.C. 1442, which is the uh, removal statute, and the first part of, of the statute says, you know, that a federal officer can remove for you know acts that are under color of office. But then the second part of the statute, which deals with a different removal provision, that's not about federal officers. But it, it specifies that, you know, if you were, I think it's like, a, I can't remember the precise language, but basically it says like either a current or a former or, or at the time you were X, Y, Z, then you can remove. So the 11th Circuit was contrasting those two provisions to say, well, if the, if Congress, you know, thought that uh, former federal officials, not just Current federal officials could remove their cases to federal court. Why didn't they also specify this in this first provision of the statute? Uh, so that's kind of what was going on textually. So it, it is a plausible reading of the statute that maybe Congress didn't intend uh, for former federal officials to be able to remove to federal court. However, uh, Mark Meadows points out in his brief that those two sections of the statute were passed uh, or amended decades apart. So that could could be one of the explanations. It's not like, you know, they were passed together. Uh, so that could be one of the explanations as to why they have that differing language. Um, I also will have looked into some of the cases. There's not a lot of direct case law on this question, but I, I think that You know, I will say that it seems like there are examples of former federal officials who um, have been able to remove uh, mostly in civil suits. But that's largely because most of the case law in this area is about former federal officials being sued uh, in civil suits and then removing to federal court. Um, there's at least one example that I'm aware of of a circuit case that involved a criminal prosecution and and the federal officer by the time he was prosecuted um, and the and the circuit court took it up he was then a former federal official so um, I think that it's something that has been long been assumed because of the policy reasons that that Ben uh, you, you know made the case for. Um, I think it's telling that Fannie Willis didn't initially make this argument because. It's something that I think that if they had looked at the statute and thought it was a compelling argument, they would have gone ahead and made it. Um, but with that said, they did make a you know, really compelling case in their brief. I will be surprised, though, if the, if the um, 11th Circuit's opinion turns on this question. I think that it's all going to still come down to the scope of office question.
0: All right. We are going to cut off the Q&A now because uh, we have three more questions on it already, and I want to get through them all. Uh, Graham, the floor is yours.
7: Thanks, Ben. Um, Yeah, I'm still musing, uh, or or maybe rather bemused, by uh, Judge Cannon's order for the extensive SEPA briefing. And I have to imagine that most of the case law on this is centered around D.C. or perhaps Maryland or Virginia. So I guess it's not too surprising that a district judge in some far-flung corner of the U.S. might not be a SEPA expert, but I would guess that they should probably study up on that on their own rather than order a sort of law school remedial briefing on it. But maybe it's not clear if that's what she's doing or whether it's this delay i guess we don't really know her motivation but i guess the question is you mentioned that it's justiciable to the appeals court and i'm wondering what it would take for her to do that would cause uh such an appeal to be to be raised.
0: Roger do you want to take this?
4: Sure. It's certainly true that the lion's share of these cases are brought in either the Fourth Circuit or the D.C. Circuit. Um, Fourth Circuit has uh, a lot of the intelligence community, uh, the CIA, the National uh, Security Agency. And the Fourth Circuit has had the most most of these uh, SEPA cases, which is a specialty. The 11th, I mean, there have there have been cases in the uh, Florida and, and including recent cases, uh, SEPA cases and big
0: cases. The yeah, the the Noriega case was in the was 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 in the South Florida District Court.
4: Yeah, so uh, it's not like we're out in the hicks or you know or, or something uh, that that. But it's it's a surprising ruling. Uh, the the government early on, uh, you know, filed a. a an overview of what CEPA is and why it was enacted. It's about twenty one pages. Um, it describes what each, you know, because the government never assumes uh, the the judge has had one of these before and um, explaining what each section is about. To put the best face on it, um, there's some language in this in the discovery, Rule, uh, federal rule of criminal procedure sixteen, that sounds mandatory, that um, the defendant is supposed to get certain things, and SEPA, an act of Congress, does contradict that, and in certain ways, and so maybe it raises a question of well, which one was enacted first? The rules of criminal procedure do have the status of a of a statute. So uh can you harmonize you know those are legitimate questions but they I'm surprised it's uh, I, I it's not a new question and the the extent of the briefing she wants to know about section 4 she wants uh, uh, it's just very it is very odd to me I I can't really explain it I I, I don't think it's Personally, I don't think it's just about delay. I, I think it's something else. And and as to what would cause an interlocutory appeal, you know, anything that endangers the youth, that sets a precedent that is going to make it difficult to prosecute these sorts of cases, because um, uh, – that's what um, uh, the intelligence community and the U.S. Attorney's Office both fear most: that some judge that isn't familiar with this will do something, uh, and 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 they'll be stuck. You know, th- this will not just ruin this prosecution; it'll ruin all prosecutions. So this is a big, you know, it it won't take much uh, if it's if if it's way. Out of the ordinary to to cause the government to have to take an interlocutory appeal.
0: There's a there's a general uh, the idea of Sipa basically is to balance or harmonize the defendant's Sixth Amendment rights to a fair trial and to and to see all the confront all the evidence against him with the government's need to protect classified material, and so there is an idea that there are, you're going to. Front, you're going to put before the court all the classified material you might have to use in either defending or in prosecuting. And then you're going to come up with appropriate summaries or substitutions that can be presented unclassified. Any ruling that affects the answer to that question is appealable on an interlocutory basis. And so sometimes there are a lot of interlocutory appeals before a CEPA case goes to trial. here you have 31 documents that are charged. you could have appeals on any or all of them. There's also any material that Trump might want to use where the government's going to say no, you can't put that you can't use that in open court. They're going to have to figure out an arrangement, any ruling that affects the answers to those questions are appealable on an interlocutory basis. And I agree with Roger, it will not take all that much for the government to take her up, partly because they really want to establish the record that she is not playing with a full pack of cards. All right, we're going to
8: go through the last three questions quickly. Michael. Hello, good evening. Um, I'm trying to follow this from the United Kingdom. And from uh, luck. A UK unitary point of view, these yeah. two trials involving Trump for very similar in it with substantively very similar in the accusations, is very peculiar. I can't imagine. Yeah, well,
0: we fought a war with you guys yeah, to try to, to have this divided sovereignty thing where, you know. Uh, You know, we get, you know, you guys didn't devolve a parliament to
8: Scotland until 10 years ago or something. Okay, yeah, you're right. And and we're very we're very far behind. So (laughs) I will catch a couple of hundred years. We'll catch up. No, my question was really you all give the impression or what I've read is that the two sets of prosecution teams cannot talk to each other or should not talk to each other. And I'm not sure if there's a a rule for that, or it's just politics. I could argue that from the point of view of justice and efficiency and the use of taxpayers' money, they should actually talk to each other. Otherwise, we're throwing money away. Yeah, okay. So,
0: So it's a good question. And the answer is people are overstating the rule. Here's the rule there is no rule that says they can't talk to each other. There is a rule that says the federal prosecutors cannot share grand jury information except under very limited circumstances. Federal grand jury information is very, very tightly protected. Beyond that, uh, there are prudential reasons why they might not want to talk to each other uh, like, for example, that Donald Trump is out there alleging that there's a big conspiracy and these people are all working together. So one way of not feeding that is by having very limited or no consultations. But there is no rule that says that they cannot uh, talk to one another or coordinate with one another. And sometimes, by the way, federal law enforcement does coordinate between states and with states. Uh, so. Uh, Yeah, to the extent that people are saying they cannot talk to each other, that's just not true. There's an important exception as well to the grand jury secrecy limitation, which is that they can talk to each other, they can share grand jury information for a legitimate law enforcement purpose. I forget the exact language of the Rule 6e exception, but it's reasonably capacious within Uh, I think it's for a valid federal law enforcement purpose or something. I forget the exact language. But if there's a good reason to do it, you can do it. You can't do it recreationally or socially. All right, Joyce, it says, please ask for me. Uh, The commentariat has noted that Chesbro and Powell have pursued the speedy trial gambit in hopes that Fonny Willis is not ready for trial and that they can be acquitted but this choice is revocable. It seems that her office is really ready to proceed with only five weeks to go before trial starts. And the entirety of discovery has not yet been delivered, asking you to speculate, are they really going to go to trial on October 23rd? I will just say my speculation is I don't know what uh, Sidney Powell is up to, but I think Chesborough, for the reasons we discussed last week, wants to go to trial immediately and thinks if he goes to trial and just says, I'm a lawyer representing a client, he wins. That's my guess. Anna, what do you think?
3: I, I mean, I will say that. At today, and and remember, this is right after Chesbro and Powell have effectively gotten what they wanted except from being severed from each other, which is to be severed from everyone else. And uh, today, uh defense attorneys represented to Judge McAfee that they might have some interlocutory appeals uh, that they would like to pursue before the trial on October 23rd, and that that would then toll the, the speedy trial demand. So...
0: So I'm wrong. <laughs> uh,
3: I mean, I'm just saying he hasn't yet ruled on anything for them to appeal. So, I mean, I don't know how they would know that they have um, it other than, you know, the severance uh, motion But in in terms of Powell and Chesbro with respect to each other. But um, so just something, uh, a hint that maybe they are not being fully um, committed to the, the October 23rd trial. So we will see.
0: Nothing concentrates the mind like a hanging, and the equivalent of a hanging is going to trial. Simon, you get the last question today.
6: Thanks very much. Um, I'm back uh, on the grand jury's charging recommendations from uh, Georgia. They, uh, among other things, uh, recommended charges against three senators who have not been charged Uh, Lindsey Graham's case has been pretty extensively covered in the media. I haven't seen much about the other two. I was uh, a little bit struck by the fact that although there was a lot of speculation about members of the House uh, being somehow involved in January 6th, that there were charging recommendations against people in the Senate, but not people in the House. Uh, are, are there reasons to think that there were very different roles played by these people? How much do we know about the role the other two senators played that were against whom charges were recommended? Uh, is there a different legal status, depending on whether you're in the Senate or the House?
0: Anna, you want to finish us up with thoughts on this?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a tough question. It's a good question, but it's a tough question to answer because that special grand jury report tells us so little about what the special grand jury was considering in terms of evidence, what the scope of the investigation was. Um, You know, there might be reasons why Fannie Willis didn't look at What members of the House were doing because maybe they didn't have relevant conduct that they uh, did in Fulton County uh, for jurisdiction or venue purposes. You know, there's all kinds of reasons as to why maybe Senator Perdue and Senator Loeffler. Or former senators uh, would have been looked at, uh, whereas um, members of the House did not. What well, we do know about Purdue and Lawler from publicly available information and and reporting on the special grand jury, um, you know, the the report itself recommends Purdue for indictment in two areas. Uh, one has to do with communications with uh, various. People in the state of Georgia uh, to basically pressure them to overturn the election, um, and then Lawler is also recommended for indictment in the more general recommendations around folks who were, you know, partic- who participated in the conspiracy. There's also a footnote that the grand jury mentions that one grand juror thought that the statements by Purdue and Lawler, while um, while pandering to the base, I think is the term that they use, um, or pandering to their base was was not criminal in nature. Um, so we have an idea that it relates to, um, you know, potentially some statements that maybe Purdue made that the grand jury uh, believed to be. Uh, either themselves false or um, you know soliciting false statements. That's the code section that they cite to. Um, and then you know there's also reporting that the the grand jury potentially looked at this meeting that Loeffler and and Purdue had with Brian Kemp, where they tried to uh, allegedly pressure him into calling a special session of the Georgia General Assembly to overturn the results of of the election by you know Georgia. Uh, the, the legislature appointing electors, uh, electors in, in favor of Trump, so there's a lot of things there, but I just don 't know what what exactly the, the grand jury looked at and had in mind in, in making its charging recommendations. So un- unfortunately i can 't really answer the question, but it, it is a good question and I wonder if Ben or Roger or uh, Serafin have any thoughts about you know maybe why we didn't see some of these other folks.
0: I will just say that the speech and debate clause is a is a big nut to crack, and uh, Fannie Willis may have just made the decision that that was not an additional burden she wanted to take on. And oh, by the way, in Georgia, the senators were more active than the members of Congress. May have been different if you'd been in Pennsylvania, but uh, in dealing with uh you know, some of the more active uh, members of Congress. But in Georgia, uh, you know, Lindsey Graham and and uh, the uh, sitting senators from the state were the people who were really engaged. We are going to leave it there. We have gone on a long time. Roger Parloff, Sarafin Danani, and Anna Bauer from the hideous pink chair room of her palatial mansion Thank you for joining us. We will be back next week. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our audio engineers. This episode were Isabel Kirby McGowan of Goat Rodeo and Anna Hickey of Lawfare. Folks, if you want to join the conversation be part of it. Have your questions answered, not just to hear it, but be part of it. Become a material supporter of Lawfare. You can do that at lawfaremedia.org slash support, and you can be on the part of the conversation that actually talks the next time we do Trump Trials and Tribulations. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, Our music is performed by the one, the only Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.